Will you turn with me to page 1034, 1034 in your Bibles? It's Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 1 through to 35. We pick up the reading just as Jesus has concluded speaking in his Sermon on the Plain. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bear. They were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who has come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they asked, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses and evil spirits and he gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. 
What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, amongst those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptised by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptised by John. Jesus went on to say, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you said, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. May God add to our understanding of his word today. Thank you, Mike. Morning. Welcome, faithful remnant. Everybody else is off on a weekend away, but I'm glad you're here. It's good to have you. So, have you ever had a glimpse of the future? So, I'm going to show you a clip now. I think I remember watching this. This is from 1994. Let's just have a look. Thanks, Alex. Imagine a world where every word ever written... Every picture ever painted and every film ever shot could be viewed instantly in your home via an information superhighway, a high-capacity digital communications network. What that would mean is you could transform your home into a mammoth interactive entertainment centre with the odd stock exchange and shopping centre thrown in. It sounds pretty grand, but it all comes down to computers communicating. And in fact, that's already happening on something called the internet, that anyone in the world with a computer and a modem to connect it to a telephone line can subscribe to. Something called the internet. Imagine that. It all seems very quaint and twee now, doesn't it? But that's only 22 years ago. And her report goes on to talk about all the things that we might be able to do with the internet, you know, home shopping, streaming video, all pretty accurate. Um, now we can see the greater implications of that technology. It's changed how we work and learn all sorts of things, and probably not yet seen all of the implications of that technology. I show you that because in today's passage, uh, Jesus gives us a glimpse, just a glimpse of the size and the scope of the salvation that he brings. A glimpse of what it will mean fully in the future, that in him, the kingdom of God has arrived. 
So just to set you some context here, first of all. So in chapters 4 to 6 that we've looked at so far in this series, so Jesus has laid out his manifesto that he's come with God's, all God's authority to declare in the present God's final verdict. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus has come to summon sinners to repentance and he's recruited some of those sinners as his disciples. And he's called his followers to a radical discipleship. Doing what Jesus says, not doing what he says, not just what he, just listening to him. And having God's family likeness of mercy and forgiveness, even for our enemies. So we get to chapter 7 now, and there's a bit of a section break there. So when, in the Gospels, when Jesus moves somewhere, it's, good to, it's usually a signal that here's the next bit sort of thing, like a chapter heading. Um, so chapters 7 and 8 are all about salvation. So a bit of a Greek lesson here. Can you say so-so? Not so-so. So-so. Like, like tzadziki. So-so. So if you have a look on the screen here, here's all the places in 7 and 8 where we get that word. So it's sometimes translated as healed, sometimes as saved. And just show you that, just so you know, these two chapters, they're about salvation. They're about being saved. Uh, Luke uses the word to describe different aspects of salvation. Um, and in chapter 7 and 8, what we've got is kind of a salvation sandwich. So in the middle, we've got the essence of salvation that we'll come to next week. Um, key verse, your faith has saved you, go in peace. And then sort of the next layer on the outside, each side of that, um, is the responses that we see to salvation. And then at either end, uh, at the beginning of chapter 7, at the end of chapter 8, we get these uh, salvation miracles. So that's sort of a rough plan of where we are. So today we'll look at the first two salvation miracles and the response. Okay. That can come down now, thanks, Alex. So, let's get into this passage. Um, This is where we see what it means that the kingdom of God has arrived more fully. And we start with our two salvation miracles. So, the first one's about a centurion's servant being being saved from disease. So, we'll look at 1 to 10 first. Verses 1 to 10, that's centurion. Now, as miracle accounts go, it's a bit funny this, isn't it? Because we don't actually get to meet the servant. You know, he gets a mention in verses 2 and 10. But this sixth servant who ends up healed, not much about him. Because this first miracle, it's all about authority and faith. Authority and faith. The authority of Jesus and the faith that the centurion has in him. So this centurion, Luke lets us know he's a good bloke, doesn't he? Verse 2, he values his servant highly, which he doesn't have to as a slave. Um, the centurion's a Roman, so on paper he's like the enemy. But notice it's in verse four. It's Jewish, Jewish. <clears throat> excuse me. It's Jewish, Jewish civil leaders who plead earnestly with Jesus. Oh, he built our synagogue. He's a good bloke. Uh, he's an important man. So he's sort of an equivalent of a major in modern army. A hundred men under his command, and yet he's humble. Verse six. Lord, don't trouble yourself, right? I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I did not even consider myself, myself worthy to come to you. So this centurion is, is a man of the world. He's probably seen some action. Yet look at the faith that he shows. Verse 7. Say the word and my servant will be healed. 
this centurion, he understands authority. He's under somebody's authority. And he says, the centurion himself says, jump, and his men jump. He, he gets that. For, his, for the centurion's men, getting an order from the centurion was, was just like getting an order from Caesar himself. And this centurion recognizes in Jesus his authority. Now, some things it's good to be there in person for, isn't it? When I was at uni, you had to, you had to have at least 80% attendance. These days, I understand, if you miss it, you can just watch the video podcast later on. And that's good for some lecturers who aren't so good, I suppose. But there are some lecturers you know, somebody like Simon, you just know it's worth being there in person. No, no. You just, there's something different about being there in person. You, you get their authority. You just feel it's, more, it's explained better somehow by being there in person. This centurion recognizes that Jesus has got such authority that he can fully exercise it beyond his physical presence just by saying the word. And sure enough, verse 10, the servant is found well. And Jesus, used to, de- used to dealing with the condemning hearts of the Pharisees, is verse 9, is amazed at the centurion. That word mean, literally means he mar- marveled at him. I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. <laughs> so why is this centurion so sure of Jesus? Maybe it's his military background. Maybe he thinks the whole world works like the Roman army and what, what he say gets done. But what can we learn from him? Well, we know in verse 3 that he's heard of Jesus. He's listened. And we've seen that he's humble. And he's put together that knowledge of what he's heard and his humility. And he's made a request, trusting and depending on Jesus, even though he knows he's not worthy of it. So we're hearing Jesus right now. We're hearing him in the gospel we keep hearing about him as we keep reading the gospel and the rest of the Bible. So keep doing that. Keep hearing Jesus in the gospels. Humbly recognize him, recognizing him as Lord, as having authority over you. Another thing to learn is, um, when Sharon had just given birth to Mavanwi, she she's looking at me now what you're going to say. <laughs> uh, she's uninhibited by the gas and air that had helped her along. <laughs> and she was praising and thanking God. She was saying, oh, thank you, God, so much. A daughter, oh, thank you, God. God is so good, God is so good, all of this. And the midwife, probably trying to shut her up, said to her, oh, you have a lot of faith, haven't you? And Sharon replied, I've got a bit of faith, but it's who it's in that counts. So the important thing about the centurion in this encounter isn't the quality of the faith. I could send you away saying, Arnie, you've all got to be so faithful. The centurion's quality of faith. But actually, his faith is just simple, uncomplicated. He just has it. The important thing is who the centurion's faith is in. In Jesus. Imagine if he'd trusted in his own authority. 
Well, his poor old servant would be dead. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were relying on their ability to get good things done. Uh, they reckoned, they made out it was for God, but actually, really it was to win God's favour, to coerce God into liking them enough, blessing them enough. So it was actually for their own benefit. And there's always a danger for us that we'll slip back into trying to get back into God's good books with good things that we do. But if we humbly recognise Jesus' authority, if we trust and depend on him to save us, then he will make us right with God, forgiven, saved, fully pleasing to God. And then, yes, we'll do good things, but we'll do them... um, We'll do that like the centurion's friends and like, the, like um, the Jewish people that he sent to see Jesus. Because we'll be so thankful to God that we, we want to serve and vouch for God like they wanted to serve and vouch for the centurion. So that's saved from disease. Uh, and quickly followed on, following on, we get another salvation miracle where a young man is saved from death. So we're looking at verses 11 to 16 now. Saved from death. And we start to see the full scope of the salvation that Jesus brings. So I read this and it feels like a scene from a western, doesn't it? They're at the town gate. You can see the creaky sign dangling, Nain. One of the letters has fallen off. It says Nan, maybe. And you get this funeral procession on the way out of the town. A big crowd of them. And then on the way into the town meeting up with them, this, the latest hotshot teacher and a large crowd, loads of witnesses. Notice there's loads of witnesses here in the time, in the place. You, when this gospel was published, you could have gone and asked, were you at Nain on that day? So crowd coming out of town, crowd coming into town. And this woman, a poor widow, has lost her only means of support. Verse 13. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, oh, don't cry. Jesus is acting out of compassion here. But unless he really does have authority over death itself, then what he says next, what he does next, would be just plain cruel. Verse 14, he went up and touched the beer. That's like the stretcher carrying the body. He went up and touched the beer that they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. Can you imagine? Funerals are such controlled, dignified affairs, aren't they? People only ever sort of look at the coffin obliquely. But imagine somebody coming up to the front, tapping on the coffin and shouting, come on, out you come. Verse 15. The dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Jesus really did have authority to raise the dead with just a word. We're starting to see the scope of the salvation Jesus is bringing. Uh, The crowd gives a good summary. Verse 16, they were filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. Now, Luke the writer of this gospel, carefully collating these eyewitness accounts, is a doctor. Luke knows that dead men do not come back to life. So I don't think we're to read this and think, 
oh yeah, it's just another day at the office of Jesus, just another miracle. It's more, this is impossible, but it's just happened. This can only mean that God is up to something. Who is this man? John the Baptist, Jesus' forerunner, uh, he was wondering the same thing. That's our next point, 17 to 23. Who is he? Jesus tells us that he is the one who will bring God's complete final salvation. See, John the Baptist, he'd been expecting the coming one, God's Messiah King, to come to judge But Jesus hadn't done any of that. Indeed, early in chapter 4, when he was quoting a quote from Isaiah, he stopped short of the judgment vengeance part. And that's because although Jesus will return to judge, at this first coming, he's come to save. So John's a bit confused by this, and he sends his disciples to ask, verse 19, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? And so by way of an answer, Jesus does a bit of a show and tell. Verse 21. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. And then Jesus deliberately connects what he's doing, what he has been doing, with a sort of best of, best of quotes from Isaiah, all about the Saviour that will summon the redeemed for salvation in a new creation. Verse 22, he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. The closest match to that quote is uh, Isaiah 35. We'll read it at the end. Uh, It paints a picture of all the effects of God's judgment on sin. And the world, on the world, being gone, all suffering reversed, just as Jesus had been doing. So John's question is, is this you? And Jesus' answer, in practice and in word, is an emphatic yes. Uh, now we, we hate, Australians have noticed generally they don't like someone who big tickets themselves, who pumps their own tyres, makes them out, sells out to sound really good. I heard an American author um, once say that in the US, if he's doing a presentation, he has to start with, telling him what an ex- start with telling him what an expert he is and all his accomplishments and all his publishes and stuff, or else no one will listen to him. That's in the United States. He noticed that in Australia, if he does start with how great he is, no one will listen to him. So is Jesus just sort of big-ticketing himself here, building himself up? Well, he knows some people will think that. Verse 23, blessed is anyone who does not stumble, or that word stumble also means um, not scandalized or offended. So blessed is anyone who does not stumble or offended on account of me. But all that we've seen Jesus do, all we've heard him say, The evidence is pointing in one direction. That Jesus really is going to do all this. And what we've seen is a sneak preview as this salvation 
breaks into history in Jesus. Disease and death, they're not right. They, should, they shouldn't be here. But they're there lurking, waiting to catch up with us, aren't they? Like, like a hex step from a course that you never wanted to do in the first place. They're just there lurking, waiting to catch up with us. Yet Jesus has just effortlessly defeated them with just a word. So the application for us here is confidence. We can have confidence in Jesus that when he says, repent, believe in me, and I will save you, he really does have the authority to do that. Whatever suffering or grieving we go through, whatever it costs us to follow Jesus, we can have certainty that Jesus can deliver on what he promises. And whilst trouble and pain we go through now are real and raw and sickening, we can endure them. Because what Jesus does here in these chapters is just a foretaste, a glimpse, a real one, but just a glimpse of a glorious salvation with no pain, no tears, no death, no disease. So Jesus then asked the crowd about John the Baptist, verses 24 to 30. He asked them, have you found who you're looking for? Verse 24, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind. So when you went out to see John the Baptist, did you go to see a people pleaser swayed by public opinion? No, it wasn't that. Verse 25, if not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes, no, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. So John the Baptist was no slick politician. Uh, Mark, he's described in Mark's Gospel. John wore clothing made out of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. Can you imagine? Crowds from all over, a full-on revival, had got trekked into the wilderness to hear John. And when they got there, they found this weirdo in strange clothes. And his opening gambit to them is a winsome... You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Not exactly a slick politician. So Jesus asked them, What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Jesus asked these rhetorical questions about John to draw out that John was the last and best prophet of the Old Testament calling for repentance. And in verse 27, Jesus equates John with the messenger foretold in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, Jesus equates John with this messenger who would herald God's coming in person to save. Jesus is saying he himself is God coming in person to save. He says, John is the greatest man ever born, but Jesus brings the kingdom of God. And even the least person in that kingdom is greater than John. Why? Because Jesus can declare our sins forgiven. Jesus can present us as if we have his record of righteousness, given access to that perfect highway of salvation. 
Brothers and sisters in Christ, is that how you see yourself? As greater than John the Baptist? Because that's what Jesus says you are. Then verses 29 and 30. In case we're wondering how John prepared the way, uh, Luke explains why some, even bad eggs like the tax collectors, believed in John and then believed in Jesus. And why others, like the Pharisees and the lawyers, rejected John and then rejected Jesus. And it was all down to whether they'd had John's baptism. That is, a baptism of repentance. Had they repented of their sins, turned around and asked God for forgiveness? And had they physically represented that heart change with a water baptism? See, the Pharisees... And the teachers of the law, they should have had more of an idea than anyone about what to expect the the coming Messiah to be like. They should have given Jesus a fair go. They should have assessed his claims against the Bible. But they would not accept John or Jesus from the word go. Because they refused to admit that there was anything wrong with themselves and would not repent. If you're not a Christian, can I ask, have you given Jesus a fair go? Is your stumbling block a refusal to recognize that you need saving at all? That you need to repent? Because Jesus' gospel of forgiveness includes a call to repent. Now, I don't say that as an, I'm better than you, and you need to be like me. I say it like, like Levi, the tax collector. He had all his mates around at his house because he knew they needed Jesus. Because he knew he needed Jesus. I pray that you hear John and Jesus call this morning to turn away from living for yourself. To turn to Jesus and trust him to forgive your sins and make you part of God's family. So just finally... Uh, Verses 31 to 35, Jesus is weighing the response to salvation. And his verdict is, there's just no pleasing some people. 31, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? Are they like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other? We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. This uh, parable of the brats, I like to call it, Pictures children, they just won't play. Because the other kids are playing weddings, and and when they're playing weddings, they don't want to play that. They want to play funerals. So when they start playing funeral music, oh, I don't don't want to play that either. There's no pleasing them. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law are just like them. In John, they had a proper old school, um, Old Testament, deny himself prophet, demanding repentance. And they accused him of being demon-possessed. When Jesus comes, offering forgiveness, doing amazing miracles, teaching with authority, they call him a glutton and a drunkard. It makes you wonder just who they would have accepted. It makes you wonder if they would have accepted anyone. It's a bit like uh, New Year's Eve. These days, I struggle to stay up till midnight. But when I did used to do exciting things on New Year's Eve, it used to drive me nuts making plans for New Year's Eve because everybody, nobody commits, do they? Everybody holds out and waits for a better offer. 
Is that you with Jesus? Or people you know, maybe? You know there's more to life. You know you're searching for something. But there's something about Jesus which provokes uh, some objection. So you're waiting for a better offer, which is easier to accept. I encourage anyone to investigate Jesus, bringing all your intellect, all your objections, being honest about what you really think. But all I ask is that you give him a chance. So many seemingly reasonable objections to Jesus need examining because they're based on convenient presuppositions, which mean that you don't have to give Jesus a fair go. Things like you can only prove what with only what you can prove with a repeatable experiment is true. Or ancient people believed anything. They were sort of subhuman. Or the Bible is not historically reliable. Excuses that stop us giving Jesus a fair go. I can't prove Jesus to you. Of course, faith is involved. But in the end, if you give Jesus a fair go, I'm convinced you'll see that it's a reasoned, reasonable trust in Jesus based on plenty of evidence. Uh, this means that we need to be careful with uh, apologetics, so our reason defense of God, because we're not trying to persuade people to have faith in an argument. We're trying to persuade people to have put their trust in Jesus. So we must always point to Jesus, and we must also always reason gently, non-judgmentally, without condemning. But in the end... Accepting or rejecting Jesus, it isn't an intellectual issue. It's a matter of our will, of our heart. It's a moral issue. Are we willing to repent or not? Are we willing to give ourselves over to Jesus? If we do, we're forgiven. We're made members of his kingdom, destined to enjoy eternity in harmony with God with no death, no disease, no sin. This glimpse of the future that Jesus has shown us becomes a glimpse of our future. So to finish, I'm just going to read out from Isaiah 35, that vision, about which is Jesus is saying, I'm the one who brings you this. It's on the screen. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackal once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will, highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Amen.